You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Yo! Welcome in to the House of L podcast. It's a House of L actual episode. I'm Lawrence. Thanks so much for hanging out here with me on the podcast today. I think that you are in for a treat with today's guest, whether you are someone who enjoys talking about comic books or if you're someone who enjoys learning about history, if you enjoy military history. United States history, boy, have I got a guest for you. I want to tell you the story of how this interview came to be because I think it's it's tremendous, and I will tell you that in just a minute, but I want to give props to one of the people who takes care of us here on the House of L podcast, and that's David Hochberg. If you're interested in lowering your rate, paying off debt, shortening the term of your loan, or renovating your house, call Team Hochberg. You're a trusted local lender for a free consultation. Back in May, Team Hochberg helped all of the listeners to the House of L podcast and outside of us, even the folks that don't listen. What are you thinking? Access $1.9 million of their home's equity and reduce their payments over $35,000 a month. So far this year, Team Hochberg has helped listeners extract over $12 million of their home's equity. That saved them over $362 a month. So what are you waiting for? Your debt isn't going to magically disappear, and the consultation is free. Call Team Hochberg right now, 855-56-DAVID, or visit 56david.com. Check out David Hochberg's show. I don't mind giving him the plug over on WGN. It's totally fine. You should listen to him. Saturday mornings at 10, he's a very smart guy. That's why the show is called House Smarts. Homeside Financials, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 1124061. And I can give this my seal of approval because I've worked with David Hochberg on every piece of property that I have owned in Chicago. I'm telling you, his people are legit. And if you are looking to get equity out of your home or refinance or buy a new place, they are the people for you. And when you do this, tell David that I sent you. All right? Cool. 
Our guest on this week's episode is a historian named Cord A. Scott. I want to tell you how all of this happened, how I was able to get him on the podcast and why I got him on the podcast. I am someone who is often in the middle of technology. Like from the moment that I wake up, you know, you're checking your Apple Watch or whatever, you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, you're turning on the TV and you're trying to, you're trying to, Take all of that in every day because you never know where, for me, you never know where a really good show idea is going to come from or you never know where a topic might come from. And all of those places are places that spark ideas for me. But I will admit that sometimes I need to do less of it, which is weird because you're literally listening to podcast and that's another way of things getting disseminated occasionally I take many breaks you can't it has been my experience that you can't do too much breaks unless you're actually on vacation and even then it gets pretty difficult because you're in the middle of a season whatever that season may be and it always seems like At the end of a season, you're going to take some time off and really, really, really get away. But there usually aren't too many points inside calendars of a regular or even in this irregular year of sports to be able to do that. All-Star Week was an opportunity to do that. I didn't do it. That's on me. (laughs) But there aren't a lot of chances to, to really get a chance to do it. I enjoy Sundays are kind of my walk days. If I'm working out at the gym, like that's one thing. But I love to walk around my neighborhood and the adjoining neighborhoods to Hyde Park. So I'll walk to Woodlawn. I'll walk to Washington Park. I'll, when I'm really ambitious, I'll end up heading over to South Shore and Jackson Park when I'm really, really ambitious. So this happened about a month ago. A month ago, I go out for a walk. It was one of those walks where I just got lost. I knew where I was. I mean, in the activity. I got lost in the activity. And I stayed out, and I was listening to music and listening to some incredible mixtapes. And I looked up. By the time I turned on the television, it was about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, which is rare. And the White Sox were getting ready to play. So I was getting ready to watch that. I was flipping around because you know, I wasn't watching pregame. I was just kind of flipping, seeing what was what was on. And I came across this Q&A and this presentation on Channel 11. And there was this guy, and he was talking about the history of comic books in a way that I never heard discussed from an academic. I've heard people involved in the comic book world talk about it this way. Creatives who talk about the history of comic books and their importance to national political conversations in the United States and abroad. I've heard creatives. I actually have literally had conversations with Kyle Higgins, who is an incredible creative who works in the comic book world, about this very subject. But I've never heard it discussed 
in on the platform of academia. And this was a presentation that was going on at the Pritzker Military Museum. And I'm like, I'm so fascinated by this. It was perfect. So I sat down on the couch and watched this professor, Cord A. Scott, talk about the subject of comic books as propaganda. And I'm trying not to have a pejorative attached to it, and I hope that that's not something that makes you run away from this episode. I mean of how, for the most part, comics that were inserted into newspapers, comics that ended up living on their own, have had a history of moving national and local political discourse. It is a part, it is a rich part of the history of comics and comic books for the history of time. And I know that over the last few years, if you look at what is now the most popular franchise and and way of consumption of comic book culture, you look at the MCU and you look at some of the messages that were brought about over the 11-year stretch of Marvel movies that come out. And I think a lot about Captain America and the way that that character changed throughout the arc of the stories in the MCU. Now, I'm, I'm a Captain America reader, so I was ready for it. It's what happened in the comic books. So it didn't seem that strange to me when you see Captain America being disillusioned by America and being disillusioned by the power structure of the government and government agencies and even his beloved S.H.I.E.L.D. seeing how corrupt it can be. One of the reasons that I've always loved Captain America is is those realizations and him not being so blinded by the patriotism of his uniform that he would stand by and see stuff that he felt went against his own code of ethics and his own thoughts of patriotism. So here I was listening to Cord A. Scott kind of give a real good history of how this came to be, why it's so popular. And he was talking about at the time, a paper that he wrote, and then the paper subsequently turned into a book called Comics and Conflict, Patriotism and Propaganda from World War II through Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I was just enthralled by the conversation. I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. I got to find this guy. So I started to look around. And I'm like, I got to find him. I got I to gotta have a conversation with him, and hopefully he's cool with coming on and hanging out on the podcast and talking about this stuff. He spent his academic career really delving into a lot of these things. And the amount of work that he's done on the subject is amazing amazing so 
so I reached out to him. I just, I had found like an old email address and reached out to him. And he got back to me and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And then something weird happened. I am not intimidated by much. But in the world of academics, and I joke all the time that I'm a quasi-academic because of my master's degree and because I teach. But I, I often refer to myself as a scholar practitioner. I would say that I'm scholar practitioner more than I am a college professor because I'm not tenure track. I'm teaching what I know. Part of the reason that I went and got my master's is that if I did want to get on a tenure track, which is very difficult if you don't have a PhD, which is a whole other story, which at some point I'll do a podcast about, okay? But when it comes to subject matters that I love, it's intimidating to see someone who has really built a life on serious study of these subject matters the way that Professor Scott has. He, he's done this on the highest level of, of academia. So the more I read about him, the more I was like, oh, man, I really have to buckle down and get ready for this interview. And he was super nice. So he, and like a lot of academics do, once I told him what I was thinking and how I wanted to interview him, he, of course, then researched me. And then he started sending me all of this stuff. And it was sports stuff that he had written. And I was like, holy crap, this guy also has a wide background in sports and the history of Chicago, things that I consider myself to be, at, at least have a, a somewhat of a learned background on these subjects. So I'm not going to lie to you. I was intimidated by talking with him about these things. But it turned out, like, I, I think, I think, and I'm hoping that you enjoy this interview, too. I really enjoy talking with Professor Scott on a myriad of subjects. And we talk about some of the stuff that I think is difficult, like what happened last year with Punisher. And I think that you'll enjoy that part of the conversation. If you're someone who has lived in the space of looking at comics as a diversion, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Just know that throughout their entire history, there has been a connection to a point of view. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to romanticize and act as if comic books weren't used as a way to try and affect change. And I really enjoyed Professor Scott talking about this. To give you some background, because he's, he's, as weird as it sounds, he's local. So he's got his PhD in American history from Loyola. Loyola, Chicago. And he has studied 
the military and American history and comic book history and spoken all over the world about this subject. Very lucky to have him on the podcast. I think you will enjoy the conversation. This is me and Dr. Cord A. Scott, author of Comics and Conflict, talking about that very subject on the House of L podcast. I want to start with this. Where did your love for comic books start? <laughs> um, man, this, this actually goes back to when I was a little kid, uh, like back in the mid seventies. Um, we would, we would have my, my parents used to buy mad magazine when I was really small. And one of the first things I ever learned how to really comprehend was spy versus spy. So it, it kind of developed out of that. When I was a little older, we had a neighbor kid down the street who his dad would always buy like tons of comic books. So a lot of, you know, so I, if we were over there, I'd read like Sergeant Rock or GI Combat or a bunch of war related ones that, that they always had in the house as well. So it just, it kind of developed out of that. Um, when I was in when I was in high school and even into college, I collected comics for a little while back in the, like the heyday when everything was like, oh, you need to buy this variant of this one, and, you know, because it's going to be worth billions of dollars. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't buy for that reason, but that's when I was collecting. And ironically enough, in the early 90s, when I started graduate school, my collection kind of fell to the wayside. So I, I quit for a while. I just, I didn't. I'm going to shut the window here real quick. Um, I didn't, you know, I kind of got out of the whole comics end of it. Um, and then the, the, how I got back into it was I was, I was teaching for a design college in Chicago, which is now defunct. Um, I'm sure you've probably heard, you've seen the old uh, ads for, IDT yes. or IAMD. That's what I used to work for. And so I was teaching a class in, of all things, I, I taught a couple, I taught a class in the history of comic books um, that would kind of fell into a humanities class. And I also taught a propaganda class. And in the fall of 2001, when 9 11 occurred, I happened to be reading an, an article in the Chicago Tribune where they were talking about how m the Marvel heads were felt entirely just, you know, helpless because of what had gone on. You know, here they're writing about superheroes, but they, you know, they couldn't stop any of this stuff. And so they had revamped uh, Spider-Man 136 with the all black cover. And I had read about it and I thought, oh, well, you know, I want to use this in my propaganda class. So I went down to a, a comic book shop, which is probably no longer there in, in uh, Rogers Park. And I had, was talking to the, the guy who owned the place and you know we were chatting about stuff and I had seen a Captain America with a, with a Nazi symbol on it as well because it was for one of the weird graphic novels offshoots. And the, the guy who owned the place said, well, you realize they're redoing Captain America to now deal with the terrorist issue and i had known about the the origins of captain america but i didn't know about this so i kind of like oh well i'll buy that and one thing led to another and 
suddenly I'm just when I thought they got me, I got out. They pulled me right back. Yeah, I, I was wondering how you ended up marrying your love of history and teaching propaganda with comic books, but it makes all the sense in the world. I I think that it's, I find it fascinating that people, when they talk about comic books, don't seem to understand the political history that comic books have, have had. So for for the people that, that are listening where where can we pinpoint a start of comics as propaganda too? Oh boy. <laughs> um, I would actually go back to, I mean, really, you could go back to the right around World War II and the origins, because you have some when I was when I the book you're the book you're referencing back was my dissertation, which ended up being a, a book published by um the Naval Institute. And when I was doing the research on it, one thing I kind of found out was that, you know, I was curious as to why they used Hitler as a, as a villain for, for um, specifically Captain America. And one of the reasons that Jack Kirby had said they used him was because he made such a great villain, period. And he's in the news all the time. So it wasn't necessarily that they were striving to be political in its tone it just ended up organically coming out that way and then it then it had more of a political issue because you know specifically you know jack kirby being jewish um when when the uh, captain america issues first came out they were getting threats from the nazi from the bund which was the american um, not the american nazi party but an early iterant of it you know so it's it, it was kind of weird that then they were kind of like, oh, well, okay, well, then let's, let's go in for a little bit more of this. There are some, as far as political propaganda, some of the, some of the early stories from uh, Superman are, are also kind of interesting because Superman ended up being somewhere on the, on the political left. You know, Superman was like fighting for, fighting for the, the coal miners. For example, there was a there was a storyline where there was an unscrupulous uh, mine owner who had basically he, his his greed had led to the lack of safety standards, which ended up getting some people injured. And so Superman went down and you know saved the workers, and then punished the the uh, the miner the mine owner. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, well we're fighting for the common man as opposed to you know you know, the, the typical capitalist type issue. So, I mean, so you see some of these political issues going back almost to the origins of comic books themselves, not to mention the fact that you know, comic illustrations have always a political aspect to them. I thought that it was interesting in one of the pieces that you wrote, you you pointed out the the dichotomy of, one in in Captain America and and also in Superman, where there's the idea of the Superman, aka the Uberman, and it, yeah. and it becomes an American symbol. And with Captain America, him fighting off the Nazis, but kind of being a Nazi dream of <laughs> of how of what he looks like and how he was created. Yeah, it's that that always was kind of 
it's always kind of crazy in its own right. And if you go through some of those original um, storylines, some of the villains look almost stereotypical in their presentation. Um, specific, I mean, especially when you start dealing with like, uh, oh man, specifically the Asian, the Asian depictions are, are very stereotypical. The, well, all, all of the villains kind of fall into that realm because you have like the Germans or the, the stereotypical monocled Prussian, kind of almost like with the uh, dueling scar, you know, that sort of issue. You have some issues, uh, depictions of say like the, uh, the Mosconians, which were supposed to be like surrogate Soviets. You know, and they almost had that that style of dress and mannerisms, which kind of made them look villainous in their own right. Some of the villains, ironically enough, almost come up looking like uh, animalistic depictions, which were very similar to what the Nazis were doing in reference to, say, like, um, you know, their depictions of the Jews being rats. I mean, so some of this stuff is really kind of, if you look at it from a, from a, a visual perspective it's really weird because they almost they almost go the same way as that they're trying to argue against if that makes any sense you're just kind of sitting there looking at this going uh this is weird but it's also the entire comic industry is always based on exaggeration of you know larger than life images or anything that is always made bigger and more dramatic for visual effect so I'm gonna, so sorry, apologies on that one. I was just no problem. To shut the door and make, make sure I wasn't too loud for everybody. So anyway. No, no problem. Uh, yeah. I, I always have thought that Superman as, um, Superman as an immigrant was a really interesting thing too. And early on there weren't as many, I mean, obviously it's his backstory, but to politicize that that fact, once we get into the 80s and 90s and 2000s, where it's it's Clark Kent being like, well, wait a minute, like, am I also not American, even though I'm I'm not from here? What, what did you think of them kind of flipping those stories to talk about that particular subject? I, I've always found found that quite interesting. The the one the one reference to Superman or the one iteration of Superman that I personally loved that a lot of people were very offended by was the uh, Mark Millar version where they Superman red sun. I love it. It's my favorite. I mean, it's my favorite graphic novel. Literally, you know, so here you have a Scotsman writing a story about what if simply the rotation of the earth would have caused Superman to land in Ukraine in 38, you know, and I just, ironically enough, that storyline was based on a Superman comic from the late 70s. It was Superman 300, where the, the whole thing talked about what if Superman would come in, in the quote, modern era at that point, and the Soviets and the Americans frantically trying to get aboard his craft because it had landed in the oceans they wanted to be able to claim salvage rights you know or, you know citizenship rights for lack of a better phrase and that's where Millar got the idea of, well, let's just tweak this storyline 
and make him land rather than in landing in Kansas, let's make him land in the Ukraine. How might have that changed things? And I, I thought it was just, I thought it was great, you know, but yeah, I mean, again, you talk about the, the appropriation of symbology and icons, you know, Superman is truth, justice in the American way. So to have anybody tweaking this to, to you know, put, put a hammer and sickle on Superman was kind of like, you know, that's why people were furious about it. Now, sometimes people take their, you know, their fake uh, heroes a little bit too seriously. <laughs> it's always kind of a, mm. So what's what's the, been the reaction when you've done lectures, when you've talked to students? Because I, I imagine that this particular subject matter is interesting, especially in the last decade where we've seen this rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And maybe there are more people who might be interested in figuring out like how those characters came to be and how they were depicted. It's. I have to admit, I'm a little bit removed from it in the last few years. And and the reason why is just because of the fact of where I'm at. Um, For for the audience who doesn't know, I'm I'm currently, I I teach U.S. service personnel and their families, but I'm overseas. So so I've had that, this kind of this, I wouldn't say a disconnect, but it's kind of a, a little bit less of a focus on comic books per se now it's not to say that i haven't completely given up on the stuff because i i still read a fair amount and i'm still picking up other issues the, the big thing that i've i've kind of glommed onto of late has been like japanese or korean depictions of american comic books so basically they're just transcribing the books into either Hangul or in, into Japanese. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, it's kind of kind of neat in that regard. But the the one, I guess the one thing that I would take away from it is whenever I do talk about it, the idea of comics being sometimes a little bit more um, politically focused than one might at first realize. That's something that catches the students off guard because they don't always realize you know, these have been around for a while, but they've had kind of a, a different connection, a, a different um, focus, if you will. The other thing that I, when I, if I bring, bring up comic books that I really do try to, you know, hook the students in with is the fact that sometimes comics have been used in ways that they might not be aware of. The big thing for a lot of the, specifically the army folks, is something called PS Magazine, which is a small little digest. It's, it's not even the size of a full comic book. <coughs> Excuse me, but the whole thing was done in such a way that you could, you could see things like parts on a, parts for a, 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 like an M16 or you know, the radio parts or specific things like washers or, or guides on tanks. You know, here's here's how we can blow this apart to show you the the pieces of it without using an actual photograph of it, but it's written in such a way that it's like a comic book, but it's a technical comic book of sorts. And some of the some of the students are not even aware of the, the fact that this thing exists. 
um, until I show them and then they go, oh, okay, well, yeah, maybe I think I've heard something about that in, you know, like down in the motor pool or something like that. Interestingly enough, PS Magazine was actually started by a comic book writer, Will Eisner, you know, who had done the spirit during World War, a little before World War II. But when he came in, he decided that, you know, oh, we can use the visual media as a way to both entertain and inform, you know, soldiers. And then there's the whole during World War II, you would have like reproductions or smaller, what they called pony uh, comics, which were, they were shrunk down and they were done in basic, not even full color, but they were just, they would use black and reds um, and some tinting, but they would take like Spy Smasher or Superman and they would just shrink them down and then send them to soldiers in the field for something to read. So it was always kind of a, kind of an interesting connection to Again, home life was something that was familiar. It was a form of entertainment that they could read, but at the same point, it was still kind of a, I wouldn't say whiz, uh, whimsy involved in it, but something that gives them like almost like, oh, I can, this is the very serious business of war, but then I can think of something that, you know, might give me a little bit of a respite and take me back maybe to memories of my childhood or something. But I don't know. It, it, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I I, I want to follow up on it. I, how sure. important do you think that comic books have been in the history of the military? Like for for the the soldiers that are abroad, like how important has that connection been? Um, it's it's been it's been a bit more prevalent than people might realize. The comic books themselves ebbs and flows, you know, it, it's especially as more media have been added into the, to society, you know, the comic book has kind of faded a little bit in its, in its importance, but you still see elements of comic, you know, or exaggerated illustrations or characters that are done in a comedic form, kind of a gallows humor form. You see that throughout military history. Um, one of the other books that I, I worked on uh, recently was a, was Bill Malden. For those for those not familiar with Bill Malden, he was he was incredibly important for creating two characters named Willie and Joe, and they were supposed to be like the average GIs from World War II. And this ran in Stars and Stripes, you know. So these two guys, you know, who would would make pithy comments about you know what what conditions were life like in Italy and these were meant to be semi-comic in their illustration but at the same point they were incredibly important in fact Bill Malden won his first Pulitzer Prize because of his illustrations for Stars and Stripes well the concept of Stars and Stripes using either soldier produced cartoons or civilian produced cartoons in a in a newspaper format that still continues to this day um, you do have some other um, illustrators who have gone on to make uh, modern versions of story arcs or characters that are, are kind of based on 
Willie and Joe, but they're they're set in a modern aspect. Um, the the one who always comes to mind for me is a a former Marine by the name of Max Uyarte, who did something called Terminal Lance, and he's actually done several. The series has run for a better part of a decade or over a decade now, but he's also done some actual graphic novels as well, White Donkey, and um, most recently. Uh, um, Lapis Azure, I'm probably mispronouncing it, hang on for a minute, Battleborn, Battleborn is the name of the book, and Lapis Azure is the, uh, the subtitle to it, but again, these are, these are stories that are not necessarily meant to be entirely humorous, but they're done in the style of a comic book, but they're, they're set to a military theme, you know, so that, the, and so that tradition is still there. Um, coming back to, to Malden, Malden continued on doing illustrations for throughout his, throughout his career. He, he came here to Korea at one point while working for Collier's Magazine, and then he went on to do political cartoons uh, for, amongst other things, the Chicago Sun. So th this too, had a, he had a long career of, of, of this illustrative work which was still recognized even to this day. So there's a, there is a, there's a good connection to it. And again, you do also see some, uh, some characters. Captain America is obviously a big one for the military. Now, uh, the Punisher has been, you know, the, the symbology of the Punisher has been adapted into military units or into official or unofficial um, patches, you know, as an example. So th this has led to some controversy that I could, I could go into later on. I, I mean, you, you read, read my mind because I, I actually did want to ask you about the Punisher symbol. And, and last summer, I, I, I don't know if, if you were paying attention to what Jerry Conway, the, the creator of Punisher, had oh, done. Yes. But but I thought it was interesting that he felt it necessary to reclaim the the Punisher symbol, and it, it was one of those characters that you know I I knew about I knew a little bit of the history of Frank, and I enjoyed the series that Marvel did with Punisher. But I I remember seeing some panels of the of Punisher being patted on the back by the New York Police Department for something that he had done. And Frank Castle was like, listen, I, this is not the way. <laughs> this is not the way that things yeah. should go. How did you, as someone who has a historic background in, in learning about these characters and how they are sometimes co-opted, what did you think of Conway, his attempt to try and reclaim that character and, and its symbol? I, I, I thought it was rather, rather important, especially given all the you know, given all the events that were occurring stateside. Um, again, you know, knowing a bit more about the original character, how it was, how it was created, you know, the Punisher was created by Conway in 74. This is at the height of the whole anti-hero movement for media. I mean, this is, this is the realm of Dirty Harry. This is the realm of the original uh, Death Wish movies. You know, the idea of Crime is rampant in America, things like that. And so 
when the, when the character was created, it was meant to be not necessarily a one to hold up, you know, but one to say this is, you know, there's some bigger issues within society that are, that are kind of coming out. And, you know, so when you know, being around a fair amount of the symbology that I had seen, I when Conway came out, especially last summer, and started mentioning the fact that, yeah, I'm pretty upset that, that my character and, and the imagery of that character has been co-opted for other purposes. I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. For, are, are, we, are we videotaping this or is this strictly audio? I'm only using the audio. Okay. The, well, for, for those who might be listening, I'm actually holding up two patches that I had bought here on bases. One is the Punisher skull with the, the uh, Blue Lives Matter flag on it, which Conway was not happy about the co-option. The other one would be that, which is the, again, the Punisher logo with the, the uh, American flag on it. The, I know that one of the other ones that especially Conway had talked about was the idea of using, say like the Confederate stars and bars over the, uh, you know, the Punisher skull as well. So the, this whole issue did lead to some, some arguments about whether or not it should be eliminated by units. Um, and it actually became an article in Stars and Stripes from a couple of years ago about trying to get rid of things that looked overtly um, violent. You know, issues of, say, using like uh, skulls or, you know, it, it was kind of... It, this leads to a whole different issue that we can't really get into, I, you know. But it, but it's again, it's it's kind of the it's kind of the idea where, in the bigger picture, you have these uses of comic book symbols being brought back into things like military culture, and and there is kind of that blurring of the sorts. The last thing I, I guess I would kind of bring up as far as like the the, the Punisher story arcs from the, from the from the the original comic book that's been produced um, would be the stuff that uh, Garth Ennis did you know where the the idea he started going back into like the Punisher's origins in Vietnam and how I mean and this is from anything from like Born which was the the uh, the series that came out in the early two thousands through a lot of the that Garth Ennis created mythos, which has been borrowed into a whole lot of the backstory of why the Punisher became what he became. So it's 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 kind of an it adds a bit more for at least for from a fictional sense for the depth of the character, but at the same point, it also kind of gives a little bit more of an insight of like, okay, well, how would he react to something like what's going on now? Would he be would he be offended by you know, people trying to co-opt his, you know, like Conway's being frustrated about people co-opting the symbol of the Punisher, would the Punisher himself be kind of like mad about the issue of people kind of kind of co-opting a sense of justice for their own means of sorts. You know, and I and again I, I realize that for some they might consider this way too much in the realm of overthinking a fictional character that doesn't exist, you know, let's talk about all these other issues that may not, may be a bit superfluous in the real world, so to speak, but.
You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NIA, members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Do you think because of all of the, the, the input that you're getting from people that are consuming some of these things that you have some insight into why we connect with these characters the way that we do? I mean, I would say that part of the reason why we always connect with characters that are seen as, as larger than life is that, number one, they have abilities that we've always kind of wondered about or maybe wanted to have when we were little kids. You know, when we were a little kid, who, who doesn't want to go, hey, I wish I could jump in the air and fly. That's why we tie bed sheets on, on our, you know, around our neck like a cape in the first place, you know, so... But at the same point, you know, the characters themselves, as, as they become a bit more nuanced, we, we start to realize that as with any form of literature, and I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody by this, you know, you take any sort of literary character and you put them into a, into a situation where they get to do something that maybe we've thought about, but we've never been able to act on. Mm. You know? One of the reasons why the Punisher is likable is the fact that, yeah, he's living by his own code, but at the same point, he's meting out justice to people who he thinks deserves it. Now, on one hand, you know, this is a dangerous issue, especially if you apply it to the modern era of right now, because anybody acting outside of legal realms, this we've seen where potentially this could go very quickly but at the same point who hasn't thought about yeah i've seen people get away with things because of their wealth because of their influence because of whatever and you know yeah if i had the opportunity I, maybe i'd like to you know issue out a bit of punishment to those who deserve it you know so it, it, it it's a form it's a fantasy but it's also a form of being able to, you know, imagine what it might be like to act out on that fantasy without actually doing it. And, you know, it, so there's a relatability to it. You know, it might take us back to our childhood. It might take us back to, you know, my, my life is such that I can't do anything that would be that extreme, but man, I'd like to imagine it, that, that type issue. What so. did, what did you think of, or what have you thought in, in all of your study on this subject of the parallel between Stan Lee early on with the X-Men and the civil rights movement. I mean, I mean that, that I feel like there is a, a pretty 
straight line between Magneto and Malcolm X and Charles Xavier and Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and again, look at one of the reasons, you know, again, you start talking to, you know, comic book aficionados and they're always like, you know, are, are you a Marvel or a DC fan? It's kind of like that whole Cubs versus Sox things. You know, you, you open it up and somebody's going to say, you can't skate on this. You are going to give me an, an answer. <laughs> on this. Now, but, you know, one of the reasons why X-Men and Spider-Man and, and Fantastic Four were so successful in the 60s is because of the fact that either whether he, he happened on it or it, you know, it was you know, a happy circumstance or whatever, Stan Lee hit on that magic issue of you've got readers that are slightly, you know, they're coming into their teenage years, they're already riled up for hormones and and all sorts of issues. Society in the early 60s is kind of going with that. We want the youth of JFK, you know, he's going to bring a better world for us. And then suddenly when JFK is killed, that, that promise, that dream is suddenly pulled away. Then when you start getting into the civil rights movement, you get into all these issues that are roiling up society you get readers who are like, okay, I can identify with this. You know, one of the reasons why people loved Spider-Man is because of the fact that he's a teenager. Well, you know, again, going back to that whole idea of, yeah, I've got powers, you know, gee, if you're a little kid and you have unlimited powers, would you make some mistakes? Sure you would. As a teenager, we're not quite adults, we're not quite kids. But imagine if you had a lot of power, what could you potentially do right or wrong? And then Stan Lee hit on something, and I don't know if he ever talked about it, but it's kind of interesting that to use the historical parallel, think of the most fanatical individuals in any society, specifically authoritarian society, who are their most ardent and most violent individuals it's the teenagers because they're already dealing with they're trying to set their own terms they're trying to break away from you know set their own pathway in life but at the same point they do and they don't quite understand the issue of consequences they do and don't understand the idea of violence so they're easily they're far more easily manipulated and the two examples i can always come to mind with are the hitler youth in germany you know, they're the ones who kind of hold on to the bitter end for things. And then also Pol Pot in Cambodia. You know, this is slightly tangential, but if you, if you were to ever walk through the killing fields at Chongek in Cambodia, there's a large sign and they explain that the vast majority of the people who were killers in that case were teenagers because they could be easily manipulated into doing these things, but not yet recognize the, the consequences of how much this is going to influence society. You know? So Stan Lee's kind of, you know, clearly he's not that you know, driven into the, you know, we could really mess with some people, but at the same point, he recognizes that, you know, as Peter Parker is told, with great power comes with great responsibility. The idea here is that you've got to find that balance as an adult would. 
you know, so it's, it's, that's one of the reasons why people could read it and go, oh, okay, he's going through problems. He's going through growing pains, so to speak. You know, I can relate to that. Even in, and, and at the same point, I can act out fantasies. So same thing that you're saying, like that theory holds true in the Sudan as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I never thought about it that way, but it's a hundred percent correct. You spend so much time in Chicago. So did you grow up there? I couldn't, I couldn't. No. Okay. I wasn't sure. Um, but I know that, that the Harold Washington was on your list. Uh, the, the design school was on your list yep. and, and obviously Loyola. So how often were you confronted with the Cubs socks thing? Oh Lord. I got, I got hit with that right off the bat. You know, I'm, I'm originally now give you a little bit of background. I'm originally from, Minot, North Dakota, which is about 35 miles south of the Canadian border. The nearest big place, you know, nearest town of at least a couple hundred thousand people was Minneapolis. That's eight hours away. You know, so when I was a kid, I, you know, was root for the twins, root for the Vikings. So when I finally moved out to Chicago in, in my late 20s, my brother had already been living out here. And yeah, I got I was confronted with the whole Cubs Sox issue right off the bat and um when i sent you the um i, I sent you the baseball paper i lived in oak park so i was kind of like really if you wanted to be technical at that point i was kind of equidistant between both both stadiums and at the same point yeah i would still get the the inevitable you know it's one or the other you can't root for both and i'm like why not <laughs> I had no baseball teams near me as a kid. I I get two. <laughs> I I really enjoyed that paper, and I I knew that there were there were some boundaries for where the White Sox could play, but I I didn't know like like that it was an actual like rule. I I thought that it was just kind of a of course you'll and you can only play up to here but f- hearing the stories and knowing some of the stories about the the negro league team the chicago american giants that played over in the stockyards too finding yeah. out about that i was i was blown away by it it was so fascinating i thought that it was a really compelling when you talk about the history of these two teams and what they represent from one side of the city to the other now if i could do a you know, if I could put in a shameless plug for one of my classmates, um, Pat Mallory, who's a classmate of mine at Loyola, Chicago, and Pat and I had known each other for, for a couple of years before that as well. Pat actually wrote his dissertation on the origins of baseball from, I mean, the really early rounders era and the, the myth of, of Doubleday all the way up through the end of the dead ball era. So he actually spent like an entire chapter on the origins of softball, which was created as an indoor league for, for baseballers in Chicago in, in the 1870s. So it's kind of kind of neat as well. And then the other thing that um, I thought that you, you might find interesting as well, see if I've got it here. La, 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 la. There we go. Um, sorry, I'm grabbing stuff off my shelf. That's why I'm kind of going in and out. There you go. The comic book history of baseball. What? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Who wrote that? 
Um, it is from uh, Alex Irvine, and the art is by Tom Coker and C.P. Smith. Give me a second, and I will tell you it's uh, from Ten Speed Press. Okay, putting that on the list. Yeah, so I'll, I'll hold it back up for you if you wanted to. Oh, I got it. I that's outstanding. So, 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 so you've been able through to whether it was your own study or people that you ran into while studying, you've been able to kind of run the gamut when it comes to the history of, of comic books in all these different places where people might not expect them to be. I, I, I've been very lucky in many regards because of while, while several people will, will clearly point out that I've, Kvetched and complained about my my professional allotment in life. I, I've been very lucky that I've, I've been able to stick my toes into several different aspects of of history. So I, you know, when I first moved to Chicago, a lot of my early publication work was when I was in grad school, and I was still really focused on Chicago because I was living there, and and basically what I was trying to do in a very practical sense is I was trying to, I was trying to dovetail my, my teaching loads with my, with my student loads of me having to write papers. So I was picking out stuff that I was, I was already kind of familiar with from, from my teaching end of it. At the same point, because of where I was at as, as an instructor, I would get people who abs they would openly come up to me on the first day and say, I, I hate history. I just, I hate it. And I'm like, well, first off, that's not the, not the thing you want to tell your history instructor. Right <laughs> off the bat. But second of all, you use history all the time. And they're like, no, I don't. And I'm like, yeah, you do. And so I would, I would go to the, I would go to my students who were, were fashion design students. And I'm like, okay, well, where'd you get your ideas from? For your designs. Well, I got them by going through this book of the 1940 stuff. Well, there you go. You're demonstrating the use of history. You're just not applying it and or thinking of it as history. You're thinking of it as something else. And so when when I was when I was teaching, especially there, I, I, I started to think, okay, how can I get people involved in this? How can I get people to start thinking about history in ways that they might not normally connect with and so i would tell them pick pick something you're interested in and then we'll we'll work on a, a project from there so i would say as an example i like comic books you know i started writing papers on this stuff and that's how this came about or i or i you know i like motorcycles so i started doing research on this and that's how the chicago motorcycle paper came about or the the most famous one was the first article I ever had published, which was on the, on the Chicago car race of 1895. Literally, I was using a textbook at that time for the history of Chicago class. And there was one sentence, one sentence in that book. It was Don Miller's City of the Century. I was reading the book and I'm like, car race, huh? I was teaching a class in the history of transportation and I'd never heard of the race before. I had to come up with a topic for, for one of my grad classes. One thing leads to another. And the next thing I know, I'm talking about car races in Chicago in 1895. And I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool. So the idea is that 
ultimately history is everywhere. You can apply history, you just may not think of it as history, as in political history or military history or big idea history. This is, you know, this, you might be thinking about what we would consider social history or cultural history, which is what my field is. Um, so it's, it, I always find this stuff interesting. I always find it, I find it applicable. I'm also pretty much a historian, which means I, as I probably demonstrated in this, I ramble a lot. No, but th that's what makes it great. What's, what's a nugget of information about United States military history that people would find amazing, that maybe they don't know and they would find amazing? Oh, man. I would, I guess part of it would be the fact that the, all the, one thing that I've always been working a lot on is how many comic books, cartoons, and other odd, um, I wouldn't say odd, but, but just like publicly accessible aspects there are. You know, we don't always think about them, but but we've really we we've produced a lot of stuff. We've taken cultural items and we've applied them into things like the military. Um, again, um, so one of the other guys who's you know, probably a legend in the in the comic book industry would be Joe Kubert. You know, Kubert's the guy who created Sergeant Rock in the late fifties. You know, he was instrumental for so many different comic books. I had, the, I had the great opportunity to interview him when he was still alive for one, of my, for one of my papers that I was working on. But most people don't realize he had actually taken, eventually had taken over from Will Eisner producing PS Magazine. So, so you know, there was actually an issue where they had used Sergeant Rock as a, a story arc in PS Magazine, you know, or the fact that there are comic books that would talk about um, the ideals of American democracy that were produced by the U.S. Uh, uh, U.S. Information Agency, USIA. So, I mean, basically, these were propaganda comic books that would be sent out to different parts of the world so people could read about how the United States came about and why it was considered them, you know, a moral icon or a moral uh, beacon as opposed to something like the Soviet Union. The CIA actually used, they produced a small little, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a comic book, but they also produced a, a, a visual illustration on how to, uh, effectively subvert um, things in uh, Nicaragua in the early 1980s, you know, and, and all this stuff that I've mentioned, all of it's publicly available, you know, so it's not like I'm, you know, shh, we can't talk about this, I mean, it, it, this stuff's there, that's, you know, and, and I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, I mean, and especially for the, the CIA one, I, I, I enjoy looking at it because it's, it's, it's like reading a bad prank magazine, you know, like, you know, how can, how, 
one of the things you can do is call and disguise your voice and terrorize your boss. And I'm like, okay. you know, things like that. But I mean, it's, it, you know, there's all sorts of applicability to this visual media, you know, and, and it's, I, I've, the more I, the more I do research on this stuff, the more I find it, you know, rather amazing. The other thing that I'm always kind of surprised about is who's kind of dipped their toe into the, into the, uh, excuse me, the military produced stuff. And we talk about, you know, probably Bill Malden's the most famous of which, but I, I always talk about the three B's from World War II. Um, Dave Brager, who, who did something called G.I. Joe. And, um, you know, Malden obviously is a big one. And then uh, Stan Baker, who was the guy who did Sad Sack, you know, but these, these guys were, these guys were kind of the in instrument, I guess, Malden doesn't fit into the B unless you go Bill Malden. But, um, but the idea here is that, again, they had, they started off with, you know, either they had had some sort of art training and then applied it when they were in the army, or they, they started off had their first productions in the army and then went on to greater issues. Shell Silverstein, you know, the guy, the guy, the giving the tree. Ends, he yeah. had actually done uh, cartoons for stars and stripes here in, here in Asia during the Korean war. You know, so there's, there's a, there's a, a lot of like, kind of like cross channeling, if you will. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting in its own right. I always find this stuff amazing. And there's always, there's always so much more that, that either I can't, I can't get access to, or it's something that, you know, because I'm overseas or it's something that I'm just, I don't really necessarily have the time to, to go full bore into because I'm, I'm also teaching and things like that. So it's some amazing stuff. The one project that I was working on before I came overseas and it's one that I would love to continue on. So perhaps, you know, somebody might be able to pick up on this. I had, I had done some research time down at the Woodson branch of the Chicago Public Library going through the Chicago Defender. And I was looking for specifically African-American um, artwork during World War II, specifically like I'm, I was looking for artists. And I know that there are some, but I've not been able to, most of the stuff that I was running across was still civilian production. It was more more along the lines of um, more along the lines of like advertising than anything else. But I I was the last thing I was kind of jumping into, but I just couldn't get the time to to get to it. And I've run into a couple of roadblocks lately. Is looking at the um, some of the base newspapers from Fort Huachuca in Arizona because that's where the 92nd Infantry Division was was based out of during World War II. And so they, they had, uh, what is the name of the paper? Um, I wanna say the Buffalo because they were known as the Buffalo Soldiers. But the, the, the base paper did have some cartoon work but it was limited and I was always trying to take more time to look at it. And that's the nice thing about the internet but it's the bad thing about the internet is if it's still limited, you can't always get everything right. accessible to it. But how satisfying is it for you to work and teach military and military families? It's it's an it's 
very satisfying. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I'm an American historian by training, you know, so it's a lot of this stuff is right in my wheelhouse. I also, I also find, or I, I started off teaching a government. So this was, I, I started teaching political science and government, and then I shifted over into history. So I kind of go back and forth with the classes I teach now, I'm able to, I'm able to apply some aspects of history specifically to the military. You know, I can, I can point out things that they may have a little bit more immediate interest in because it affects, you know, their job or their, you know, their location. But at the same point, I can also teach them aspects of American history that they just may not be aware of. And I, the thing that I'm always kind of amazed with is sometimes telling them about things that I've run across that I may not even have run across until I was well into my teaching realm, but then giving that information to them and having them go, oh, I didn't know anything about that. And it maybe inspires them to start looking into things. Or I tell them about historical events that have been used Okay, here's, here's the great one. Since we just passed the 100th anniversary of it, the whole issue of the Tulsa massacre, most people only came to know of that massacre because of the HBO miniseries Watchmen based off of the graphic novel, right? So, and most people were like, well, I'd never heard of it. I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of it until I was well into my, probably my 30s, you know, in age, and it had been teaching for several years before I had even heard of it. And I went, whoa, that's kind of crazy, you know. So you, you start digging into this stuff, and you start pulling other information up. And you realize how much, not just how much history we, we don't necessarily get, but how much history there is out there. The best analogy I can give for people about history is this. And I'm gonna put it in the comic book version because I do two versions, one literary, one comic. But I tell my students that, okay, great. You're taking this class in American history. We're gonna talk about stuff, but, but we don't always know the context behind it. We don't always know the wider picture behind it. So I, I tell my students, think of it this way. You wanna go see Avengers Endgame but due to a problem, you were an hour late getting into the theater. And then you've watched about an hour and then all of a sudden your boss calls and you've got to leave. Can you tell me who the main people are? Sure. Can you tell me, do you have a fairly good idea about what's going on at that, from what you saw in the movie? Yes. Do you know the entire story behind it? No, because you're still missing key issues at key times, but you have enough of an understanding. History is kind of like that. You know, if we're taking American history, yeah, we're learning about a specific time frame, but do we know about what led up to it? Do we know about what's going on in other places around the world that might have influenced the United States or what went on in the United States that may have influenced other events elsewhere? You know, so there's more of an interaction to this that we don't always get. And I tell my students, I'm like, this is good to know. It's important to know. 
but it's also, it should be something to inspire you to read more, to understand more of what's going on around the world. You know, understand even what's going on in the United States, because I'm giving you the basics, especially for, for a, a freshman level college class, we're hitting the basic markers. I can't sit and go into the red summer in great detail of the red summer in 1919, because I don't have the time to do that. I, I, I'd love to, but I just don't have enough time to sit and smush everything into a, into a class that I can cover the basics to get everybody to at least understand what's going on. But I can reference it and go, hey, if you find this interesting, look at this, read this stuff, start here and then work out, you know, because it should be a lifelong process. So I can tell you, and, and I know that you've been super gracious with your time, but I think that you'll find this interesting. So when I'm not doing my podcast, I'm doing a radio show. And last year when there was no sports for us to talk about, we kind of had license to do some other things. Explaining Juneteenth to people was an eye-opening experience for me because I, I had said, you know, look, I imagine that you got an email today from your company that said that you were going to be off on June 19th and you don't understand why. And I went through it and people were like, I didn't know that this was a thing. Same thing with, with Watchmen. I'm a big sci-fi guy. I loved watching this new Watchmen. And it amazed me that the thing that people had the hardest time believing, outside of blue men and, you know, like, out of all of those things, the hardest thing they had um, to believe was that there was a massacre in, in Tulsa. They thought that that was just a device instead of an yeah. actual thing that happened in America. And the emails that I got from people were like, I had no idea that that was the context to tell this story and why the story was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was fascinating to watch the lights click on. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, you know, a lot of this stuff is where I grew up as a, as a, as a kid, we didn't get a lot of, how do I, how can I put this? We didn't get a lot of diverse history. Let's put it that way. Now I got the, you know, I grew up and I started elementary school in the mid seventies. And I was, I came up, I graduated in the late eighties from high school. So I knew about history, but at the same point, there was so much more I didn't know about. And as I've gone forward and we've, you know, I've read more, I find, I find out this stuff. I'm always shocked by it, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not mad about it, but I just, I'm kind of like, I realize how little I actually know, you know, Juneteenth, I will be honest, up until a few years ago, I was, you know, I understood the Emancipation Proclamation. I understood, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. I understand where everything goes on. I understand about, you know, Reconstruction. But the symbology of Juneteenth, I did not. I did not fully appreciate that. And it's it's one of those things that I'm like, I've learned something new. This is, this is important. I'm happy to learn something important. You know, and it's, again, it's, it's, 
I'm, I'm a real big proponent of just learning, just understanding everything. And, you know, and it's, it, it can be very frustrating when we don't want to be able to understand or even entertain different aspects of life if it doesn't comport with what we think life is about. History, history at its core is not good, it's bad. It's everything, you know, and, and I, we can't excise the bad and only concentrate on the absolute great things because it gives us a false sense of what's going on in the world. You know, I was, if I want to be particularly, particularly unctuous with my students, I always tell them one very important thing that, that I'm going to let you think about this one if you want to edit for time on the on the podcast or whatnot. But I always I always tell my students that history history is good and bad. You know, it's everything, but you can't eliminate it. And I and I tell my students, I'm like, I'm going to give you a very important example of this. Your grandparents having sex, and inevitably they all go, Oh my God, I don't want to think about that. I'm like, but right there, you know it happened because it had to have happened. You're actually sitting in front of me, which meant that. You know, from the standpoint of evolution, your grandparents had to have sex, which meant that your your parents existed, which meant that your parents had sex, which means you existed. But just because it happened, just that image you don't want to think about. It's unpleasant. But at the same point, you can't deny the history of it because it happened. But, you know, so here's the idea of that, you know, big things in history, little things in history. They may be unpleasant. They may, we may not like to think about them, but they occurred. You know, we can't change them. It's, it's history. It's happened in the past. So anyway, like I said, sometimes I have to use a little bit of shock value. <laughs> it it, it <laughs> works. Think about classes. Sorry about the bird. The bird's my clock behind me. So. No, no worries. I really appreciate your time. This was phenomenal. Um, thank you so much for all of this and, and I, I can't wait to to delve into all of the books and I reading pieces of the dissertation, I don't think is enough. And I really enjoyed I mean, I know that it was from a while ago, but seeing your presentation at the Pritzker War Museum, I thought was fantastic. And it's it I was just flipping. I hadn't turned on the television all day, all day. And I turned it on and there you were. And I sat there. For 30 minutes, just going, this is great. I got to find this guy. I got to talk with him about comic books and propaganda. So thank you so much for doing this. If you if you want the, the quick version that led to everything else, um, the article, the original article that started all of this was, was entitled Written in Red, White, and Blue. And it ran in... It ran in the uh, the Journal of Popular Culture in, I think it was 2007. So, and then as, as a reference point, once that paper that I, it was actually written for a grad class in American culture, that paper was based on the, the stuff I had been teaching and it all kind of like snowballed back in. And then eventually when I started my dissertation, 
that paper itself kind of split off and became the origin points of chapters two and six out of my dissertation. Mm. So that, but, but that's, that's the one paper where it started, you know, and I can, I probably got a copy floating around here somewhere that I can probably send along if need be. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this history lesson. And I, I truly appreciate you giving me an hour of your time. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. And, and uh, I look forward to hopefully I want to keep in touch because I want to talk to you about stuff. And I, I appreciate you being so willing to do this. And, and please, by all means, yeah, give me a, give me a yell if you have any questions or if you just want to want to chat. And I'm more than happy to help out how I can. So thanks a lot. Have a great rest of your day. I'm going to go to bed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you soon. Right. Thank you so much, Professor. You bet. Have a good one. What an incredible opportunity for me to talk with Cord Scott. It's one of those things where you don't know how these things are going to play out. You have an idea in your head of what you hope things will be, and there's so much more that we could have gotten into. And the reason that at the end of that you hear me talking about going to bed is because at the time of the interview, Cord was in another part of the world. So we had to coordinate the best opportunity for me and him to connect And I'll just say that it was early for him and it was late for me, but it was so worth it. It was worth the time. And, and I had a really wonderful time talking about a subject that, you know, that I'm passionate about. And this combines two of the things that I love history and comic books. I will tell you, and I I said it before in the open and I'll say it again. You really need to go look up his bibliography. There's a lot of cool books that are available for you to check out, like Comics and Conflict. There's so much here. Four Color Combat, all of the, the books. So if you're someone who is into this stuff and you want to learn more about it, I highly recommend his books. He was nice enough to send me some of the preliminary work on comics and conflict, which is crazy, really, really crazy. And when I got the chance to look up some of his work through his CV, being that I am a quasi-academic, I was so intimidated by what he had accomplished. But you can hear that his waters run deep on a bunch of different subjects, including like the history of Chicago. So I get the feeling that I will be talking with him again. I hope that that you enjoyed it because that's one of those people that I feel like I could talk to about a bunch of different subjects and we just scratched the surface on any of the Chicago stuff. So I really thank him for being available And being so good and so learned and so fun. Sometimes when you put stuff like that together. The person is learned and they're knowledgeable about everything. But they're not able to sustain your 
concentration throughout the entirety of a conversation. And I could have talked to him for hours and hours and hours. So wherever you get your books, you can find Cord A. Scott. But if you even look him up on Amazon, that's the easiest way for you to get books now because I know a lot of local bookstores haven't opened back up. I'll tell you, that was one of the the things that upset me. While we've seen everything else kind of come back to life, now that I'm back in Hyde Park, 57th Street Bookstore was always a place where I would go and they have all these incredible events and they weren't open. And I went to Pals on 57th and they weren't open. And it's it's disheartening. It's really disheartening. So wherever it is that you get your books, my hope is that your local bookstore is open back up. Because I know that it in a lot of cases it's the lifeblood of, of some neighborhoods. But wherever you can get his book, go get his book. The author's name is Corda A. Scott. And trust me, if you're a comics fan or if you just like history or if you like political science, all of that stuff is baked into everything that he's written on the subject of comics. Thanks again to our great sponsor, David Hochberg, who continues to blow me away with his support of this podcast. As I've said before, he has been instrumental in the places that I've bought. I've bought three places in Chicago, and he has been my lender for each of those places. They get stuff done. They get it done quickly. It's done correctly, and you can depend on them if you are looking to buy a home or if you're like, you know what, I want to refinance. I want to I get the refinance part of it done. They can save you a whole lot of money, and that's what they've been doing. If you want to talk about equity in your home and having that being a part of the conversation, they will do that. Call David Hochberg, and when you call him, tell him that you heard about him on the House of L podcast. 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Homeside Financials and Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 112461. I always like to keep it as transparent as possible on the pod. I'll tell you that I'm I'm getting ready for football season and I will be I will be more upfront during the next 5 months on the podcast. I've been enjoying not I wouldn't say I'm completely behind the scenes cuz obviously I'm still doing episodes and I've got a couple of great interviews already set to release in the next few weeks. But with football season coming back, like I'm going to have my football, like my Bears podcast will be on House of L. And I'm talking with some people about partnering with us. And I'm kind of excited about where a lot of those conversations have already gone and what it might mean for the expansion of House of L overall. But I'll keep you in the loop once we get closer. If, if, if it makes sense for me to partner with some of these places, then we'll talk about it. But, you know, I, I really love having partners like David Hochberg, for example, that I've worked with before, and, and we know where we stand with each other, which is a really great thing. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Even if you're not a comic fan, if you're just someone who likes United States history, I, I think that this was really, really wonderful. 
Thanks to Corday Scott. I appreciate his time. Thank you for listening. I'm having a lot of fun. Like things are going really well for House of L lately. And the more I talk to the other pods, the more excited I get. Go back and listen to the Billy Gill episode of Sports Adjacent. It is tremendous. Just tremendous. I will talk to you next time. Peace. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.